Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to gather in your name. We thank you for this great book and for the wisdom that it contains. We pray that you would help us as we come tonight to set aside all the things that we've been worried about or disturbed by or preoccupied with during the day, and that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word, that you would help us to understand um, the wisdom that Lewis has to impart here, and that you would use this time to help advance your kingdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm glad to see all of y'all here and glad for our new online people that we have. Um, I know it's been very hard to keep up with when we're having class, and it's going to keep on being that way. So just keep watching your email, and uh, you will you will get here on the right days and not like a few sad souls who tried to come when we were not having class last week. So sorry about that. All right, I have what I think out of all of the C.S. Lewis classes I've taught is the most obscure piece of music that I've ever found for you tonight. Um, so if anyone knows what this is, I will pay you $100. No fair using Shazam or anything like that. It's not King's College, Cambridge. But I have to say, it's a little bit of a trick question, because it is George Harrison, and uh, it is a song called Golders Green, but it was not a song that really achieved wide release until after George Harrison um, and the Beatles had broken up. So it's a little bit obscure, but it's actually a really good song, and it relates to what we're talking about tonight. So stay tuned for that. So let's uh, do our verse together. Please join me in saying this. And the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Much truth there. So just again, a word of welcome to anyone who's new in person and a word of welcome to those who are new online. Um, I am really impressed with some of the new online people because they just found the class and some of them have already listened to all 17 back episodes. So if that's you uh, out there in the distance, uh, we salute you. So uh, just a couple of things if you're new. There are several ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which as I said in the email, if you're on the beach, you don't need to read the email, you don't need to pay attention in class, you don't need to do anything except eat your leftover Easter candy. Um, on the other hand, you can snorkel, which means on the parts that you find interesting, you can go deeper. So for example, if you like Jared Manley Hopkins, there was a poem last week from him, and there's a poem from him again this week, and so you can go down that rabbit hole. Um, but if you're on the beach, you can not pay any attention at all to Jared Manley Hopkins and eat your Easter candy. 
or you can be a scuba diver where you just like every little bit of everything that we talk about and go and explore all of the resources that I send out. Which brings me to the email list. Uh, I would strongly encourage you, if you're following the class uh, and you're not in Charleston, to Google St. Philip's Charleston, and I will add you to the email list. We are somewhere between four and 500 strong on our email list, so uh, keep, keep that coming. That will give you all sorts of good information. And also, if I put you to sleep during class, um, the email has a summary of all the key points in it that you can read when you're awake. So, um, last week, uh, well, actually not last week, however long ago it was, March 29th, I think, was the last time we were together, um, we were talking about the very last part of chapter 11. And as I said, I make no apology for spending three weeks on that one short chapter, uh, because there is a lot of meat in there. And one of the parts that gets skipped, even by people that should know better, um, is this last little part of chapter 11 about the way that the land and creation in that heavenly realm rejoice in the transformation that happens to the man with the lizard. When the man chooses to have the lizard put to death, that sin put to death, and is transformed in this glorious, golden, bright, living creature, and the lizard is transformed into this beautiful horse, and this transformation uh, causes what Lewis uh, is expanding on the idea that the scriptures talk about, the joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. And so we see this joy, and this, that big fancy word, anthropomorphized, uh, which is basically the land and the trees acting as if they were human and having voice and singing and rumbling uh, because of their joy that's going on. And so the creation rejoices and it is shaking with the sound of joy and it has a voice. And the interesting thing is that this is all through scripture, but we're so caught in our Western materialistic technological age that we just don't think about this. And we read things like the trees of the field shall clap their hands or the earth will rejoice. Um, and we just don't pay any attention. Uh, but what Lewis is trying to show us here is that the creation, as we said in the last class, is one of the three testaments. There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, and there's the creation. And all three of those declare the glory of who God is. And we need to learn to pay more attention to the beauty of the created order. So the second thing that we talked about was how all through the Old Testament, whether it's in Job um, of the uh, sons of God shouting for joy and the morning stars singing, or Habakkuk uh, with this presence of God in the earth singing his praise. Psalm 96, the heavens are glad, the earth is rejoicing, the sea is roaring, the trees of the forest are singing, all of that. And then, of course, Dante was right in line with all of this. And he talks about the earth shaking and psalms of praise being sung every time a soul uh, is released. So we read that glorious passage. I was so tempted to read this whole thing again because I love it so much, but I'm going to spare you. But the creation narrative in The Magician's Nephew, where Aslan sings Narnia into creation, the voice of joy of this great lion who's the creator of Narnia, sings the stars and the trees and the hills and everything into creation. And I love the way um, at the end of this little paragraph it says, but it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. God, said the cabbie, ain't it lovely. Then this whole idea of obedient fire, the idea that, uh, and we had a little excerpt from your Christianity last week about Notes on a piano, like this piano over here, if you went over there and looked at the keyboard, 
you would see there are white keys and there are black keys. And you would see that there are lots of octaves on there, but you would not see a sign that says right notes and wrong notes. All of the notes on the piano are right at some points and wrong at others. And the thing that matters is knowing which note to play at which point and with which other notes. And Lewis says our impulses, our appetites, our desires are like that, that there's no uh, wrong desire that God has created, but what happens is that we use them in a wrong way or put them in the wrong time or put them with something that they're not designed for. And that this whole idea of getting those rightly ordered, which we talked about Augustine and rightly ordered love and the summary of the law that we say in church every week, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, that that order is so important. And that when those uh, impulses and desires are rightly ordered, then there's what Lewis calls obedient fire that wonderful things happen, that our humanity that's in the image of God when these things are rightly ordered can create beauty and wonder and all of those things. Then Lewis deals with that whole idea that is all over the New Testament that we just don't like very much, uh, that in order, and Jeff has been saying this in church for the past month, in order for there to be a resurrection, somebody has to die first. And we would love to just jump right to resurrection and Easter candy um, and not think about death. But the fact of the matter is everything must die before it can be resurrected. And that's one of the reasons Jesus uses that image of the seed that must fall into the ground and die before it can be raised up. And so what he's saying is that we can't hold on to anything that is earthly because it can't make it through to heaven and that each thing needs to be put to death so that it can be redeemed. Then we talked about the glory of risen love and there was a uh, sort of funny interchange. Remember Lewis is talking with George MacDonald or he's imagining that conversation in this section and Lewis is saying, you know, it doesn't really seem fair, and you know you're always in trouble if you're going to start asking about something being fair in the spiritual life. Um, But Lewis is saying, it doesn't really seem fair that this guy with the lizard who's battling this bodily desire, he seems to kind of get off easy, and then that poor woman whose only sin is that she loves her son so much She gets stuck down there in hell. That doesn't really seem fair. And MacDonald immediately jumps in and says, no, 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 no. Um, And that he, he says, Lewis has got it totally wrong and that the woman didn't love her son too much. She loved him too little and loved herself too much. And that her whole thing was about her desire to control and possess her son. And that the fact of the matter is that that, is a dangerous thing. But he says the beautiful thing is that if you look at that appetite, that fleshly appetite that was raised when it became obedient fire and was symbolized by that beautiful horse, if you look at that and then think that's what that desire became, imagine what actual love might become, how glorious that would be. So, That brings us to chapter 12. So chapter 12, again, I'm sorry to say, is going to take us more than one week uh, because there's a lot in here. But we are going to get finished with this book, I promise you. We will finish, and we will finish before June, okay? So tick-tock, tick-tock, yes. So The first part of this chapter, if you haven't read this, unless you're on the beach and don't want to read anything, please go read this because it's beautiful. So we're just going to read a little bit of it. So the first key passage is about honor and glory and heaven. So Lewis starts off this chapter asking MacDonald, is there a river nearby because of what he's seeing? 
And he says, the reason why I asked if there were another river was this. All down one long aisle of the forest, the undersides of the leafy branches had begun to tremble with dancing light. And on earth, I knew nothing so likely to produce this appearance as the reflected lights cast upward by moving water. A few moments later, I realized my mistake. Some kind of procession was approaching us, and the light came from the persons who composed it. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling, lightly drifting flowers, though by the standards of the ghost world, each petal would have weighed a hundredweight, and their fall would have been like the crashing of boulders. Then on the left and right, at each side of the forest avenue, came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. So you can see there is beauty that is surrounding him, and he's not quite sure what is going on. So then we move on a little bit to the spiritual body. I cannot now remember whether she was naked or clothed. If she were naked, then it must have been the almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy, which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. If she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through the clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. A robe or a crown is there as much a part as much one of the wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I have forgotten, and only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. And so Lewis is just awed by the beauty of this, by the sound, by the shapes, by these bright spirits, and by this light that is dancing all over everywhere. And he's so amazed and sees this beautiful woman. And so he thinks that he knows who this beautiful woman is. Because if you are going to see the most highly honored of all earthly women in heaven, who would that be? Yes, the Virgin Mary. So Lewis says, is it? Is it? I whispered to my God, not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. Ye have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. So here we have Sarah Smith of Golders Green attended by all of these dancing spirits and light and joy and music and no one has ever heard of her. And you could not have a more ordinary name than Sarah Smith. It's not even Miss Sarah Smith or the Honorable Sarah Smith or the lady Sarah Smith, or any of those things. She's just plain old Sarah Smith. And where's she from? Golders Green. Oh, just like the song. And Golders Green, this is genius. Um, I'm going to make a little detour here for a minute. How many of y'all know who the musical group The Monkees are? <laughs> All right. Oh, I'm so glad to see that some of y'all know about the monkeys. My most prized possession when I was in first grade was my Davy Jones and the Monkeys lunchbox, which if I still had that, I could probably retire. Uh, but the monkeys actually wrote some pretty 
profound songs. And one of their songs that in your spare time, if you're scuba diving, go listen to the lyrics of Pleasant Valley Sunday. And Pleasant Valley Sunday, it says, it's just another Pleasant Valley Sunday here in status symbol land. And it is about um, the beetle or the monkey's perception of American suburbs and their social climbing. Well, Golders Green, this was, this was such a God moment on our trip to England last summer because to get over jet lag, I dragged poor Jane to the London Transport Museum um, in Covent Garden and we could barely stay awake, but you didn't want to fall in there because you would hurt yourself on something. Um, but when we were going through it, and I knew I was going to be teaching the great divorce, we came around the corner and there was this. Golders Green, and you can see I was a little woozy because the picture's not quite straight. Um, but this is an original advertisement from the London Underground at the turn of the century about Golders Green. And you can't probably see all of the little details of this, but it is the myth of the happy housewife suburban life. I mean, it has everything. It has the carefully tended garden. It has the woman sewing. It has the perfectly dressed, clean little child playing in the grass. The beautiful, clean house. All of the beautifully clad people walking in an orderly procession to where the London Underground train has just dropped them off out of the nasty vapors of the city of London in this glorious suburb where even if you're not rich, you can buy a nice middle-class house. And Golders Green, for people in England in Lewis's time period, that would have symbolized middle-class happiness. Somebody that might have just sort of eased their way out of blue collar into becoming middle-class. And Golders Green is kind of like the most ordinary, the way that we might think of that is a dangerous thing to say, but um, Ames, Iowa, or something like that. Uh, the sort of town you envision in the music man. So that's what Golders Green is. The last place that you would expect a heavenly procession to be honoring someone from Golders Green. And Lewis seems to be obsessed with this particular underground line because the next stop after Golders Green, does anybody know? Finchley. Do you know why Finchley is important to Lewis? Oh dear. So think about in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they think that um, Susan is trying to correct the beavers when they are talking about this prophecy and that they're the fulfillment of the prophecy. And Susan says, oh, there must be some mistake. We're not kings and queens, we're from Finchley. Oh. So that's the next stop on this train. Okay, I'm gonna stop on the underground. Uh, so moving on, next passage. Uh, there are these giant people that are in this procession. And Lewis says, and who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't she read your Milton, says George MacDonald? A thousand liveried angels lackey her. Well, of course, all of you know that quotation, right? Yeah, I had to look that up too. So we'll come back to that. Then relationships and love in heaven. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father 
flows over into them. More on that in a minute. And then this whole idea of redeemed humanity, joy, and life. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Now that is an extraordinary statement. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity, that is those who have come into heaven after Jesus' death and resurrection, are, we are still young and has not come to its full strength because we've not been dwelling in heaven. But already there's enough joy in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. And part of what Lewis is getting here is the power of a Christian life well lived. The innumerable people who are impacted and how that life is like a stone dropped into a pond where it just keeps going. These circles and circles and circles of influence just keep going farther and farther and farther and farther. And I was thinking about this a little bit when I was thinking about the fact that Charles Stanley, who was a longtime minister at First Baptist Church of Atlanta, died yesterday. And he was 90, but he had not only been the pastor of that congregation for a very long time, but he had a very active radio preaching ministry for decades. And to think about the number of people whose lives were influenced toward the faith because of that one man's faithfulness is quite remarkable. And that's what Lewis is talking about with this woman, that the way that she lived her life, that life well lived, made in the image of God and trying to live into that by reflecting Christ, living out that verse that we've talked about before, um, that Lewis references obliquely multiple times in this book, Galatians 2.20, which if you haven't memorized, it's a great one to memorize. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives through me. For the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is exactly what Lewis is describing with this woman as someone who lived that way and the result of it was that there was joy and love that spread out of her over every person that she met. And it's very much the same thing that you see when Jesus is walking around um, in the Gospels. You might notice Jesus walks around a lot in the Gospels. That's his... Uh, you know, we had a big management phase in the 80s, management by walking around MBWA, Jesus' MBWA ministry by walking around. He's always walking around, and the people that he encounters, um, he always says something about the kingdom of God. And he literally, the kingdom of God breaks out wherever he goes. And there's a contemporary Christian song that talks about being the door that the kingdom of God can break out through, that you might be the door that the kingdom needs to break through into someone's life. So, looking at these passages with some scripture. So the first one on honor and glory in heaven, we see this woman who is being honored in this incredible way with this procession attended by Hundreds, it reminds me of in um, the great Advent hymn, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. Uh, in the hymn, it talks about thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. And Lewis uses that same example. We don't think about trains very much, not train like a choo-choo train, but train like if you, there'll probably be a good train 
when King Charles is crowned because there will be a, an ermine cloak and then there'll be all these people behind him and all these courtiers. All of that is part of the train. And so here there's this huge train behind this woman and this woman who on earth was a nobody, Sarah Smith of Golders Green, she didn't even have a driver, she rode the tube. Sarah Smith of Golders Green lived in such a way that in heaven she is receiving glory. So there's a great, there are a lot of great passages about this, but 2 Corinthians 4 is a wonderful, this whole chapter is great, but it says this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, houses, cars, fashion, jewelry, all of that, the things that are seen, position, power, money, are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And then the spiritual body is Lewis gazes at this woman surrounded by light and this procession. He can't even remember where, whether she was naked or clothed, but he remembers the great and shining train of joy and light and beauty that surrounds her. And I love the way he says the unbearable beauty of her face. And the scriptures, again, are full of what Lewis calls embarrassing promises about our future. So listen to this. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. I would commend to you to just go read that aloud to yourself five or six times to try to get your head around it, because what it's saying is that our earthly flesh, our mortal, frail, decaying, falling apart, sickly flesh is going to be overcome by the eternal fountain of life that is in the Trinity. And that life is going to flow over us so that we are transformed to be like Jesus in a resurrection body. That is an amazing thing to think about. It is not sitting in the same clothes that you have on today, but being on a cloud with a harp. <laughs> all right, earthly fame versus heavenly fame. Now this whole idea, you know, Lewis is all excited because he thinks he's about to meet the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, and you know, be able to ask her about the manger and all of that. 
<laughs> and he's so excited, and then Georgia McDonald is like, nope, Sarah Smith, Golders Green. And yeah, the, there's shock value in that line that now that you have a little context, hopefully you see the shock value a little more. Um, and Lewis is just lost for words. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Well, yeah, duh. Um, she is one of the great ones. And so the idea, and Lewis has hit on this before, remember in that awesome chapter about the artist. Remember the artist that comes in to the heavenly country, and he is appalled, appalled that no one has heard of him and that there's not a welcoming committee and probably an exhibit of his work to talk about how important he is and that Claude and Pablo have not come out to greet him as he comes. And then this, the bright spirit who's met him says, well, I'm sorry, but even on earth, no one remembers who you are now. And the guy's like, what? And it's, it's the whole idea that fame in heaven, that there is fame in heaven, but it is utterly, utterly different from what's on earth. And the interesting thing is scripture talks about this, but it's again something we don't think about very much. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Now just a little aside here, during this time period, the Pharisees and rich people, when they were making their offering in the temple, there are these receptacles for money in the temple that, that look sort of like a tuba. It's this big metal thing that's got a wide opening so you can pour the money in there. And so if somebody was coming to make a big offering, they would engage a trumpeter to come before them into the temple so everyone would be paying attention. And they would also convert the money that they were giving into the lowest currency possible to make the biggest volume. And then they would dump it, have the servant dump it over and over again as he's just going bang, 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 bang. And all the people were like, oh, they're so holy. Look how much money they gave. Oh, what a righteous person. And what Jesus is saying is if that's what you did, that's all the rewards you're going to get. You just got it right there. There's nothing else waiting for you. But he says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And part of what we're seeing with Sarah Smith of Golders Green is that she was doing her good works not to be seen by men, but because it was coming from her heart of desiring to share what God's love had done in her and overflowing that love onto others. And she couldn't care less whether they praised her for it or not. She, it just was who she was. It just overflowed out of her. And then this passage, um, this is in Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17, right at the end of all of those Last Supper dialogues when Jesus is praying right before he is arrested. And so we get this little glimpse into his heart and he's praying to his father, the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that is his disciples, the glory that God gave Jesus, he has given to his followers, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That is, that they will be with me in the heavenly realm on the other side of the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And when they die and come to be with Jesus, that they may be with him, they may be with him where he is to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me 
before the foundation of the world. And then from Romans, now if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So the idea that he's trying to get across here is that the glory that Christ has in some remarkable and mysterious way becomes the glory of those who belong to him when they are in the heavenly realms. And Lewis reflects on this in The Weight of Glory, which is uh, the long sermon that he gave at Oxford in the worst part of World War II. If you've never read The Weight of Glory, I'm so jealous of you because I would love to be able to go back and just read it the first time because it is amazing. But this is just a little excerpt from it. There is no getting away from the fact that this idea of glory is very prominent in the New Testament and in early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms, crowns, white robes, thrones, and splendor like the sun and stars. When I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas, now that is quite a range right there, taking heavenly glory, quite frankly, in the sense of fame or good report, but not fame conferred by our fellow creatures, fame with God, approval, or I might say appreciation by God. And then, when I had thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable that divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I've been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure and being praised, a moment when the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. With no taint of what we should now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. And this is this idea that God made us with design and purpose and beauty that he made us in his image, that he made us with gifts, and that when we use those gifts and that we live into, even in our fallen state, when we come into relationship with Jesus and we begin to live into what he made us to be, that there is glory and joy in heaven because of that. And that the more that we live into what he made us to be, the more remarkable Uh, our lives will become and the more impactful they will become for the kingdom. And this is the whole idea. Some of you were here on Sunday with Bishop Lawrence doing confirmation. And one of the things that he does that's very unusual for a bishop is that before he confirms each child, he does a number of things. But the last thing he does is to put his hands under their chin and to just gaze into their eyes for a moment. And he says he prays in that moment to see each of those children in the way that God sees them, without the distressing disguise of sin, without the mask that we put on, but with all of the potentiality and all of the spiritual gifts and beauty that God has put into that immortal soul. And then he talks about what if we were ever to begin to see other people like that? 
not the way that the world has beaten them down to be, but the way that God sees them. So angels, I could really go down a rabbit trail here, but for your sake, I've exercised great self-restraint. So just this one little part. Uh, And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't she read your Milton? A thousand liveried angels lackey her. And the idea here is that angels are real. And there's a whole theology of angels that doesn't really get taught on very much. Angels are mentioned over 300 times in the scripture. They're not an accident. They are part of the order of creation. And we would do well to learn more. And Lewis, I love the way he has incorporated the angels into this joyous procession that is going on here. Because in Psalm 8, uh, it talks about that man has been created a little lower than the angels, but God has chosen to crown him with glory and honor. So um, some scripture, this is from Daniel, uh, about the appearance of an angel. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And then from Revelation, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And remember, Jesus has prayed to the Father that his who belong to him, when they come into heaven, will share in that glory that the Father gives him. So I know you're dying to know about John Milton because all y'all spend all your waking moments thinking about him. Uh, John Milton is greatly underappreciated today. Uh, I would commend reading him. Um, But this particular work, Comus, I don't really recommend. Um, It is maybe not his greatest work. It's a mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E, which is sort of a weird literary form of a play. Um, But some of it is pretty cool. So what happens in the story is there's a great lady who's not named, and all of the demons are trying to tempt her with all manner of fleshly desires. And she, as she figures out what's going on, more and more proactively turns away from those fleshly temptations. And she discovers that it is better to turn her desires toward God. And that as she does that, and turns more and more towards spiritual things, she finds more and more joy. And Milton sort of sums up all that turning away from these temptations as chastity. So he says this, So dear to heaven is saintly chastity, that when a soul is found sincerely so, that is, honestly desiring the things of heaven more than the things of earth, a thousand liveried angels lackey her, driving far off each thing of sin and guilt, and in clear dream and solemn vision, tell her of things that no gross ear can hear, till oft converse with heavenly habitants begin to cast a beam on the outward shape, the unpolluted temple of the mind, and turns it by degrees to the soul's essence, till all be made immortal. And part of what he's getting at here is the process of sanctification. Um, this learning to joy in the things of the Lord. And I can see why this passage sticks with Lewis. Lewis was an expert on Milton. But remember, uh, what was the lizard doing when it was on the guy's shoulder? Yes, whispering lustful thoughts in his ear. And so there's this gross whispering in the gross ear that's going on, but even the guy says, I know this lizard can't go into heaven because he's so disgusting and inappropriate. And so here we have the opposite of that 
where the angels are telling her of things that no gross ear can hear. It is a beautiful moment. And then this whole idea of relationships and love and heaven. I'm just going to reread this passage. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Lewis is sometimes a little slow to get it. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. And some of you may have had the privilege of meeting people that model this, at least at some level, where when you talk with that person, you feel like you are the most important person in the world and that they are so interested in you, and they want to hear your story, and their love for you just comes through. And uh, I want to commend to you, if you ever have the opportunity to talk to Jerry Root, um, to please do that, because he is one of those people. It is amazing to talk to that man, and the way that he just connects, and the love just flows out of him in a way that is quite remarkable. So, some more scripture. Uh, this is from 2 Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And then Jesus in John chapter 14, talking to his disciples who are distressed that he is going away. And he tells them that he is making a way and a place for them. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then that beautiful scene uh, with the thief on the cross. And the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And part of what's important here is that as we are transformed into this glory, somehow the mystery of it is that we are still ourselves. We are still recognizable. We don't become just one amorphous blob of spiritual being up there, but all of the unique and beautiful things that reflect the image of God, particularly in us, we can recognize each other in heaven. And we see this over and over again. Um, the transfiguration, for example, Moses and Elijah are clearly visible as Moses and Elijah. And the parable of Abraham and Lazarus, they're both clearly visible. Jesus talks about bringing his disciples with him. So we will know and we will be known and those relationships will endure. And there is a beauty in that. And then this whole idea about redeemed humanity, joy, and life. And that stone of the well-lived life that just makes these concentric circles in the water that go out and out and out and touch people who the original person could never have imagined would be touched. Think about Lewis, who was really a profoundly humble person. He would be shocked that there are people that came out in the nighttime to go to a class on his book. I mean, he would be shocked by that. But just think about, there's an entire book about people who have been converted through reading Mere Christianity that tells the story of, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of those people so you never know the impact of one life. And so I love this line, there's joy enough, because of this emphasis on joy, joy is so important. In a culture of despair, particularly like what we live in today, if we have joy, we are going to be um, contagious because people are longing for it. 
There's joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady, to waken all the dead things in the universe to life. So here from Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And that treasure that they're storing up is treasure in heaven that is like that procession that we see in the opening of this chapter. And then uh, also uh, in the New Testament here in 1 Corinthians. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a, there's that word again, reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And note that this is not about salvation. It's about reward, that we do not earn our salvation. That is purely on the merit of Jesus Christ and his blood. But the reward, something about our obedience and choices makes a difference. Then uh, this from Ephesians. Uh, Do the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And then from Daniel, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I want to close tonight with another uh, poem from Jared Manley Hopkins. Uh, You've probably noticed I like Jared Manley Hopkins, Uh, but this poem is another glorious poem, and it's about exactly what Lewis is talking about in this chapter. It's about some about the power of life well lived and the glory of a human life that is lived to the glory of God. So here we go. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells stones ring, like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being, endures each one dwells, selves, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. And what Hopkins is saying here is that there's an essence in each person made in the image of God, and that when that essence shines forth and lives out what God made that person to be, that there is glory and that Christ inhabits that and that through the limbs and faces of 10,000s of people on this earth, Christ can play and love and work and that there is glory that comes to the Father through that. So I hope that that will inspire you to be that stone in the pond where men will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the amazing wonder and mystery of the fact that that which is flesh and made of dust can be transformed by the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to the imperishable 
and the immortal to dwell in glory with you forever and ever. Lord, let us not ever buy into the world's assessment of what life means. Let us not ever buy into the despair and the depression and limited view of what life is about, but let us see it as the gift that you mean for it to be, and let us seek to honor you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we love you as you have loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.